Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around a watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. The Peter Schiff Show. A late-day rally wasn't enough to bring the U.S. stock market indexes into the black on the day. And in fact, this is the first down week that the U.S. stock market has had in 2019. And something tells me it's certainly not going to be the last. You know, the market was down from the bell this morning. In fact, even before the bell, if you look at the futures Even before we got the jobs numbers, the February jobs report, which I will uh, get into a little bit later in the podcast, but before we got the jobs numbers, the markets were already down. The Dow futures, I think, were off about 125, 135, something like that. Normally, the markets are not making a big move in either direction before the jobs report comes out because people don't really know what the number is going to be. And generally, it's a market moving number. So the markets are typically pretty flat before we get the number. But this time, the markets were down based on rumors that the trade deal with China may be delayed. People were talking about this Mar-a-Lago summit that was going to take place later in the month. And now I was reading stuff about how, well, there may not be a deal in time and the Chinese may not want to go to Mar-a-Lago. And so the whole thing is up in the air. And so people were getting a little nervous about the trade deal. And so that's why the markets were already selling off. Plus, I think the Chinese markets had been weaker overnight. Now, I know Trump had tweeted out that or or maybe somebody else tweeted it out, but that Trump had said that, look, as soon as we sign a trade deal, the markets are really going to spike, right? Apparently, nobody has explained to Donald Trump how the stock market works. Buy the rumor, sell the fact. Maybe the president has more experience in the real estate market and not understanding how the stock market generally anticipates news and then sells off on the realization of that news. Now, as I've been saying on this podcast, the rumor of a trade deal has been bought so many times that at this point, they're they're already selling before the fact. 
because there were too many rumors. They had to start selling. And I think that if we actually get a trade deal, the market's going to tank on that deal. Either it's going to sell off immediately or there might be some kind of spike rally that immediately gets sold. But probably the best thing the president could do if he's concerned about the stock market is just let the negotiations go on indefinitely. I mean, he doesn't want to call it off without a deal because the market would tank if there was no deal. But I think it's going to tank if there is a deal. So the best thing he could do is keep the hope alive for a deal. And maybe he can delay the time that the stock market sells off. Or maybe he thinks that, hey, if the market really gets killed, I got that kind of get out of jail free card I can play. Like I could save the market by coming up with a trade deal. In fact, you know, I've never seen a more overhyped deal or any piece of news because I think a lot of people are ignoring all the bad news, including you know today's job report, but a lot of other numbers that have come out, consumer spending, retail sales, housing. We've had a lot of bad numbers, including uh, horrific trade deficits and budget deficits. And I think one of the reasons that so many people have ignored these bad numbers, apart from you know just having a vested interest in ignoring it, is the fact that everybody believes that a trade deal is going to solve all these problems, that this deal that Trump is negotiating is going to be so great for the economy, the economy is just going to boom as soon as we have this deal. So we have so much riding on a deal. The expectations are so high for this great deal, and it is impossible for Trump to ever deliver. Nothing that he can negotiate that is likely to be agreed to by the Chinese is going to move the needle very far when it comes to the U.S. economy or when it comes to trade. I mean, look, the tariffs haven't done anything. The trade deficits are higher now than before Trump imposed the tariffs. The tariffs have done nothing. This deal is going to do nothing. But you have a lot of hope riding on this deal, and it is just impossible. And, you know, I saw Larry Kudlow was on television this morning, you know, telling everybody to ignore the jobs numbers, but, again, focusing on trade. And, again... I'm one of the only guys that said this right off the bat. I remember a lot of people were enthusiastic about Larry Kudlow becoming the economic advisor because they were worried about Trump's tariffs. And they said, oh, Larry will talk some sense into Trump, right? Because Larry's a free trader. He was against the tariffs. And of course, what did I say? I said, no way. I said, Trump is just bringing him into the fold so that he will no longer be an adversary. He will now be a proponent of tariffs. And that's exactly what happened, right? Uh, Larry Kudlow is just a yes man for Trump. He is on there singing his praises. He is talking about how great the tariffs are, how we've brought the Chinese to the table, how we've got the Chinese over a barrel. We don't have the Chinese over anything. I mean, if anything, they've got us over a barrel now. I mean, I believe they're in the driver's seat anyway, because they produce all the stuff that we want and they loan us all the money that we need to borrow. But apart from all that, we have now put ourselves in a position where we need the deal. Our markets are dependent on a deal. The Chinese markets already went down. Our markets haven't gone down yet. Trump likes to point out that, oh, the Chinese markets have gone way down, but the U.S. market hasn't, right? And if Trump wants to prevent the U.S. market from going down, well, he better come up with a deal. I mean, there's the, the Chinese market has already fallen, so I don't know how much downside that market has left. I believe the U.S. market has a lot of downside if we don't get a deal. So at this point, the U.S. needs a deal much more than China. Not that China needs a deal at all, because they don't. 
but it's America that needs something. But the Chinese know this. I think the Chinese know that they've got Trump in a spot. So I believe that any deal that we get is not going to be substantive in that it's not going to change anything for the Chinese because the Chinese can just walk away. Right. What do the Chinese have to lose if there's no deal? Nothing. What, we're just going to jack up tariffs on the American consumer? That's our only weapon, right, to just tax American consumers more. But given how weak the economy already is, there's no way Trump can hit it with those type of tax increases. And of course, if there is no deal and we have so much invested in a deal, if the stock market has already priced in this great deal and then we deliver nothing, well, then the stock market tanks too. And then it would be even worse if we got the tariffs. So I think the Chinese realize that Trump has no choice but to agree to anything. But I think from Trump's perspective, the later he agrees, the better, because the sooner he agrees, well, then the market no longer has a trade deal to look forward to, and they can no longer read all this great stuff into a deal that doesn't exist. Because right now, nobody knows what the terms are. So everybody can pretend that this is going to be some great deal that's going to reinvigorate our economy or boost the economy when they actually see the deal and realize it doesn't do anything well, then all that hope is gone. So I think maybe Trump is going to delay a deal until he feels that he needs the deal because the market is already tanked and then he's grasping for straws, right? He's trying to find anything that he thinks might spark a rally. And maybe if the stock market sells off enough, then you know maybe we will get some kind of bounce on a deal. But if we have a deal now, given where the market is, the market's going to go down. But meanwhile, one market that has really gone down recently are the Dow transports. This is the 11th day that the transports were down. And, you know, they were only down by 45 points. They were down uh, by more than that, uh, well over 100 at their lows, but closed down 45. You know, the Dow was down over 200 and only closed down 22. So we did get, you know, a pretty big rally at the end of the day, uh, just so, you know, to minimize the bleeding on the week. But you got to go all the way back to 1971 to see a uh, losing streak this long for the transports. In fact, I thought it was going to be a record until I, I read this article on Zero Hedge that said that the transports were also down 11 days in a row in 1971 uh, when Richard Nixon was president. And, you know, 1971 was a pretty tough year. Uh, and so the transports were down uh, 11 days in a row. The, the last time they were down 10 days in a row was in 2009. So that was during the Great Recession, right? We had the transports down 10 days in a row. Now, right, everybody that was talking today about the U.S. economy, including Donald Trump's tweet, he tweeted out that it's a great day to be an American because we have the greatest economy in the world, right? We have the greatest economy in our history. Well, if we have the greatest economy in history, why are transports falling for 11 consecutive days in a row when the only time they fell for 10 days in a row, we were in the Great Recession. And when they fell for 11 days in a row, it was 1971 uh, during that terrible uh, economic and market time period. So if everything is so good, why do the transports look so bad if the economy is really great? In fact, there are all numbers that are, are horrible that are coming out. No, the the estimates for Q1 GDP now are all still below 1%, right? Yet everybody still believes that the whole year is going to be 25 to 3% growth. Why? If the first quarter is so weak, where is all this growth going to come from uh, in the rest of the year? 
everybody is just ignoring these numbers because they're just blindly optimistic. Either they think it's going to be this great trade deal or just because they're just so convinced. Everybody, Republicans in particular, have convinced themselves that this is a great economy. This is a booming economy and it's their fault. You know, it's more wishful thinking, right? Everybody who's a Republican is hoping the economy is great. Right. Because we cut taxes and theoretically we reduce some regulation. And so that's supposed to be good for the economy. And so all the Republicans want the economy to be good. And so they're hoping and wishing. But that is clouding their judgment because they're they're not looking at reality. They're just looking at what they hope reality is going to be, which is, again, why this is so problematic, because the Republicans are really, you know, uh, screwing themselves, but the entire country in the process by claiming that we have this booming economy and claiming credit for having created it. Because as they're ignoring all of the evidence that the air is coming out of this bubble, right? once it fully pops and we are in recession and we are in a bear market, the Republicans own it. They have now claimed responsibility. They're going to look like fools because they said everything is great because we did these tax cuts. And then if everything is lousy, well, then the Republicans are completely wrong. They will have nothing uh, to run on. They are not going to be able to run on four more years. Trump's not going to be able to say, keep America great again. That's his slogan because America is going to be less great than when he goes for re-election than it was when he was elected in the first, the first place. I mean, he got elected by telling the truth about how lousy the economy is, and he's not going to get reelected because his opponents are going to talk about how lousy the economy is, and his opponents will be right. The problem is their solutions, socialism, will be wrong, but that's exactly what the Americans are going to turn to because they're going to see... Uh, or their perception is that capitalism would have failed, that small government failed because we claimed we delivered all that and we made everything great and then it all blows up. Well, then everything is going to get blamed on the Republicans. And of course, the most recent bit of bad news that everybody is ignoring is today's jobs report. You know, And I was watching on CNBC before the jobs report was released. And every single person who was guessing, right, they want everybody to put in their number, you know, what do you think the number is going to be? And the consensus was 175,000 jobs, right, which was a pretty big uh, reduction from the 304,000 jobs that were supposedly created in January. And every person was pretty much above 175. Nobody was below 175. Most people were about 200, 210. Rick Santelli, who you know is one of the few guys I actually like on CNBC, but unfortunately he has totally drunk the Trump Kool-Aid. Uh, and again, he's going to be part of the problem because he says everything is great because Trump is president. Well, it's not. Again, everybody was saying the same thing when Bush was president. All the Republicans were ignoring the housing bubble and how the Fed policy had inflated it, and they did that at their own peril. And I warned at the time that they were digging their own graves uh, by, by talking about how great the economy was. In particular, Larry Kudlow was one of the biggest cheerleaders for the Bush economy until it blew up. And now he's an even bigger cheerleader for the Trump economy that's going to blow up even bigger and next time, we're going to get somebody worse than Obama. We're going to get a, a socialist. But all these guys were optimistic. It's going to be a better number. And I'm thinking, you know, this number could be negative. I'm thinking maybe we'll actually get a negative number. These guys are all so positive. Maybe we'll just get a negative number. 
And I was wrong. We didn't get a negative number. We got a positive number, but it was only positive by 20,000 jobs. That's it. And who knows? They may revise this number negative next month. Now, of course, most people expect them to revise it to a much bigger number, right? Because everybody is so optimistic. But we'll see. But we only got 20,000 jobs. And as I said on this podcast, bad news is now bad news. It used to be bad news was good news and good news was bad news when everybody was worried that the Fed was going to hike rates on good news. But now that nobody's worried about the Fed hiking rates, now that the Fed has backed away from rate hikes, uh, well, it doesn't matter. So now the markets need good news because they don't want to have to deal with a weakening economy because they're counting on growing corporate earnings. So now when we get bad news, it's actually bad news. And that's why the stock market initially sold off as soon as they saw they're weaker than expected print uh, for non-farm payrolls. Now, they did have some slight upward revisions to the prior months. In fact, the, the January number went up from 304000 to 311. But those revisions were minor compared to the size of the miss uh, that we got today. And in fact, if you look at some of the other numbers that we got on Thursday, we got a pretty big uh, number that was announced from Challenger job cuts for the month of February, 76,835,000 job cuts announced. That was a pretty big jump over the prior month. It could be an ominous sign of things to come as we're going to get more layoffs. And in fact, I think one of the biggest signs that more layoffs are coming is probably has to do with the, the wage number. That was in this report, which I'm going to get to. But first, the unemployment rate, which had been 4%, it moved up to 4% uh, in January. And I think a lot of that was um, shutdown related. People who were unemployed due to the government shutdown were claiming to be unemployed. And so now the shutdown is over. And so the number went down to 3.8%. In fact, there was a much bigger move in the uh, U6 number, uh, which I think had its biggest down move ever percentage-wise, but which followed the biggest up move, I think, ever, because I think a lot of the people who uh, were temporarily laid off, maybe they took some part-time jobs uh, during the shutdown, and then when the shutdown was over, they quit those jobs. So those numbers were kind of distorted. But private sector payrolls, which were supposed to come in at 170,000, uh, came in at plus just 25,000. Manufacturing was supposed to add 11,000 jobs added just 4,000 jobs. Labor force participation rate held steady. It's still above 63, 63 63.2. But the other big number was the average hourly earnings, which were up 0.4 average hourly earnings. Um, And the uh, prior was just up 0.1. The expectation was 0.3, so a beat. But if you look at the year-over-year, it's 3.4% is the year-over-year change in hourly earnings, up from 3.2. The average work week did tick down a little bit from 34.5 to 34.4. But the bigger news is the gain in wages. And, you know, a lot of people look at this. This is the the, the biggest gain that we've had of this entire uh, so-called recovery. Uh, But a lot of people look at the gain in wages and think, oh, this is a great thing, right? This is going to help bring people into the labor force because now that wages are up, right, more people are going to want to get these jobs, right? Now that employers are paying workers more, more people are going to want to work. And that makes sense, right? The higher the wages are, the more people who are going to want to work to get those wages, right? I mean, that's just basic supply and demand. As something is, if, if you're going to get paid more to work, well, then more people are going to want to work. 
But there's also the opposite side of that. That's looking at wages from the perspective of the employer. See, employers want to hire people for less money. And the more expensive it is to hire people, the fewer people employers want to hire. I mean, that's the other side of the coin. It's supply and demand. And so what I think is happening now is because of increasing labor costs. And labor costs are going up for a a number of reasons, right? They're going up because of inflation, uh, which is driving up, uh, you know, a lot of costs. Uh, Insurance costs are going up, you know, because of uh, Obamacare uh, being partially repealed, but still all the moral hazards being there. Uh, But you have, uh, you know, the cost of providing health insurance going up, Uh, you know, just in general, people's rents are going up, people's utility bills. I read this article just about this uh, small a cookie company in, in San Francisco. They bake a fortune cookies. And the article is about how they're going to be going out of business because of all the rising costs, rents and minimum wage and all this. And, and, and this is probably, you know, the fortune that a lot of small businesses are going to, are going to be dealing with is going to be having to go out of business or, you know, make these costs. But if it becomes more expensive to hire people because of, inflation or you know other labor labor laws that are driving up employment costs well employers are going to hire fewer people in fact I, I read an article about whole foods you know they had recently announced that they were going to pay a minimum of 15 dollars an hour for their workers well now i just read an article about all the workers who are having their hours cut back so yes they're getting paid more money per hour but now their employers don't want them working as many hours they want to get more work out of them in fewer hours so the, their actual take-home pay could be less. Even though they're getting more money per hour, if they're working fewer hours, they could have less money despite the fact they got paid uh, more per hour. But this could be happening across the economy. As inflation really rears its head and all these other uh, labor laws make it more and more expensive uh, for employers to hire people, and as you know, workers need more money because you know they have a higher cost of living, and so they need more income in order to uh, you know compensate them for even their commuting costs and things like that. If workers are getting more expensive, well, then employers are just going to hire fewer people, and that's what we saw. That's what we saw in this jobs report. We saw a big jump in wages, but very few people actually getting hired to earn those wages. But I think the next step is going to be the layoffs. Because as it becomes more expensive to keep your workers, well, then you fire your workers. I mean, employers will look for ways to reduce their overhead, to reduce their labor costs. Either they'll outsource or they'll automate or they'll try to find ways to have fewer people do the same amount of work. Or maybe some smaller employers will just do the work themselves. They'll just work longer hours themselves and and maybe fire some people that, that they had previously employed. So this is what's coming on. This is, this is stagflation. This is how it looks, right? Wages could be going up, but that doesn't mean employment is going up. Employment can be going down as wages are going up. And so what good is a higher wage if you're not earning it? What good is the $15 minimum wage to the people who've lost their jobs? They're now unemployed with a $15 minimum wage. They were better off when they were employed, you know, earning $8 an hour, $10 an hour than being unemployed uh, at $15 an hour. But, you know, pretty much everybody who I saw react to this number, just basically shrugged it off. 
oh, it's an aberration. Oh, they'll they'll revise it higher next time. Uh, maybe they want to still say it's the weather. There was a lot of snow in February, or still it's related to the shutdown. Nobody cares, right? Nobody is worried about the U.S. economy. In fact, yesterday, you know, we got a big rally in the dollar, which the dollar, you know, lost about half the gains uh, back today that it gained yesterday. But the reason the dollar was so strong yesterday is because Mario Draghi in his press conference basically was more dovish than he had been, and he reduced his outlook for Eurozone uh, economic growth and inflation, which of course is supposedly bad news. If you think there's going to be less inflation, well, that's bad, right? Because the inflation is good. And so one of the reasons that, that the ECB is going to be more easy is because they want to make sure that there's more inflation, that they're, they're getting worried that the cost of living in the Eurozone is not rising as much as they would hope. And so they may have to be even easier for longer to ensure that there is a bigger increase in the cost of living. Of course, they want the cost of living to rise by almost 2%, just under, but not quite 2%. But because of all this dovish talk about weakness in the Eurozone, the dollar went way up because the euro went down. But what everybody is overlooking is that it's not just Europe that is weak. It is the United States. And maybe there are some people that are worried that weakness in Europe may spill over into the U.S. What may be happening already is that weakness in the U.S. is spilling over into Europe. But nobody wants to acknowledge that. Look, when you have skyrocketing budget deficits, I went over the last podcast so far, the first four months of the year, the budget deficits are up 77%. Budget deficits don't go up when economies are doing well. When economies are booming, deficits go down or they turn into surpluses. The fact that the government is not collecting the tax revenue means the economy is not producing the revenue. Why? Because it's not strong. It's weak. We're having these record trade deficits. Why is that? Again, you know, Stephen Moore, who who I like, you know, again, wrote another op-ed, I think it was in the New York Times, trying to claim that there's nothing wrong with these trade deficits. And basically what he was saying in his article was that Trump was wrong to say that the trade deficits were a problem in the first place. That, you know, we don't have to worry about the trade deficits being bigger now than they were before Trump was elected because the trade deficit was never a problem. And so Trump should have made it a campaign issue. And that even though the deficits are now bigger, right, they're not going down, Trump was wrong to even think they were a problem because according to Moore, they're not a problem. They simply reflect how great our economy is. How much stronger our economy is than the rest of the world. And I went over this nonsense before. Strong economies produce surpluses. I mean, that, that, I mean, that only makes sense. If you really have a strong economy, your factories are humming. You're producing so much stuff that you can't even consume it all. And then you have all this extra stuff that you can export to earn money to get rich, and then you can start buying assets around the world. You can accumulate assets and become a creditor nation. I mean, that's how America grew. When we really had a booming economy in the past, we boomed with trade surpluses. We became the world's biggest creditor nation because we invested our trade surpluses. That's how we became rich. How did we become broke? How did we become the world's biggest debtor nation? How do we become a nation that owes more money than all the other debtor nations combined? 
with trade deficits. We borrowed money to consume because our economy was too weak to produce the goods that we were consuming. So we went into debt to consume. And how do we finance our trade deficits? By selling off our assets, right? Now, in some cases, we sell off bonds, right, which we might default on, most likely through inflation. But we also sell off our stocks. We sell off our real estate, right? We're basically selling off the farm. We're selling the cows and the chickens in order to buy food from another farmer, right? Well, you know, eventually we, we run out of stuff. We are spending ourselves into bankruptcy. And for, you know, for Stephen Moore, you know, who's a conservative free market guy to not understand and not recognize the problem. Donald Trump recognized the problem, but he didn't do anything about it. He didn't get to the root cause of it. He thought we had a trade deficit because we had bad deals that were negotiated by incompetent presidents. And that now, since he was so much smarter than all the previous presidents, he was just going to renegotiate the deal, and all of a sudden we were going to have surpluses. That's nonsense. It's not about bad deals. It's about bad regulations. It's about bad tax policy, bad fiscal policy, bad monetary policy. None of that has been changed. And it's not going to change overnight. And one of the things that Stephen Moore did mention in his op-ed was that the only way that we're going to get rid of our trade deficits is with a sharp recession. And he's right, right? And so he's saying, hey, we don't want to get rid of our trade deficits because that means a recession. Yes, but the recession is part of the healing process. See, what we have is a bubble economy. See, strong economies produce surpluses. Bubble economies produce deficits. But if you want to, if you want to pop a bubble economy, which you should want to do, right, then yes, you can get rid of the deficits because we'll stop consuming. We'll stop borrowing. Right? That's what we need to do. We can't build a viable economy. We can't make America great again until we pop the bubble or let the bubble pop. But Trump, now that he's president, doesn't want it to pop. He wants to keep filling it with air, right? He wants it to keep growing so he can get reelected. The problem is it's too big. You know, I really wish that this bubble had popped while Obama was still president. It would have been much better had we been able to blame this on Obama and the Fed instead of having it pop under Trump. You know, it's so much worse politically for the United States. And, you know, even if I'm wrong and Trump can get reelected because we don't go into the severe recession in the next two years, there's no way we're going to escape it for another six years. So either way, we're screwed. It's just that I think that it's more likely to pop in the next two years than in the next, you know, four to eight years. So I don't think Trump is going to have a, a second term. In fact, it would probably be even worse if he did. Because then we'd probably have no chance, at least if Trump loses because the economy is in a recession and then it becomes a depression uh, under the Democrats. If it becomes hyperinflation, if they really go you know, all in on the Green New Deal and the MMT and that kind of nonsense, and that happens in the first four years, and then maybe we have a shot at, at reclaiming the country in, in 2024. But one thing that was up today was the price of gold. Gold was up about $13. And, you know, it should be up a lot more. I mean, gold is having a hard time rallying back after the last sell-off. We didn't even get back above 1300 We closed, I think, around 1298 something like that, up about $12.5, $13 on the day. Silver also had a strong day. The gold and silver stocks were very strong, especially if you don't look at the indexes themselves, right? Because the, the GDX was up 2.67%.
Not that much. The juniors, the GDXJ, that did better. That was up a little over 4%. But there are a lot of individual gold stocks that, that I own and that I'm looking at that were up 6, 7, 8, 10% or more today. There were some huge movers in some of the mid, mid-tier stocks and some of the smaller stocks. And I think the reason for that is because there's so much uncertainty now overhanging Barrick Gold, Newmont, and Gold Corp based on this ridiculous hostile takeover uh, where Barrick is trying to take over Newmont, but Newmont's trying to do a deal with Gold Corp. But now the Gold Corp deal is in jeopardy, so people are worried about Gold Corp, but nobody really knows what's going on. I think this cloud of uncertainty is preventing those stocks from rising. Like Newmont was up 1.48% today. Gold Corp was up 1.1%. Uh, Barrick uh, had the best gain of them all, but only up 2.38%. So these stocks are really underperforming, but because they're bigger companies, they have a disproportionate impact on the indexes. So if you just look at some of the other stocks, you can really see a move up in some of these gold stocks. In fact, some of these other stocks may be actually moving up even more since people are not buying these big stocks. Maybe more money is going into some of these other stocks than might otherwise have been the case. So I think this is kind of masking a move. But you know, to me, I think this correction is over. You know, we got up to, you know, 1340-ish or so, and then we pulled back and got a little bit below 1300. We didn't get much below it. And now we're just below it. And, you know, I did, you know, I guess I got to apologize. I made fun of Scott Nations because he had recommended shorting gold. And I think gold was around 1340. And he said he had a price target of 1300 And I said, look, you know, here, this is a good sign that you have guys like that coming out and telling people to short gold. They should be buying it. And it turns out that, you know, he was right because his target was 1300 and we got down below 1300 So I don't know whether or not he covered that trade and has taken profits. I mean, if he did, then it's a good trade and he actually made money. Now, maybe he didn't. I don't know. I mean, if he's still in the trade, he may end up turning a winning trade into a losing trade. I really don't know what his market discipline is. I know he did have a stop. Uh, which I think if he stays in the trade long enough, he will get stopped out with a loss, although maybe he's lowered his stop. I haven't heard him uh, talk about it, so I really don't know what he's doing. But the fact is that we did have a pullback, but I still think that Nations was wrong looking for shorting opportunities in gold. I mean, gold should be bought on dips, not shorted on rallies. Even if once in a while you can short the rally and you make a little money, I think you're picking up you know, pennies in front of a steamroller. The real trade is looking for ways to get in on the gold market. If you want to short something, believe me, there's a lot of things you can short that have a lot more potential to deliver big gains than shorting gold. I mean, I don't think there's a lot on the short side for gold because I don't think the dips are going to be substantial. I mean, there'll be some trading dips if you're nimble, but I think there's a lot more money to be made buying the dips than looking for rallies to sell. And of course, maybe, you know, there'll be another rally and maybe nations will short it again. And maybe whatever profits he made on this short trade, he'll end up losing on a subsequent short trade because he still doesn't get the fact that gold is going a lot higher. And the reason that it hasn't already gone higher is because people still don't understand the situation that we're in. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen people more clueless, more oblivious to a problem than they are now. In fact, you know, I was watching also on CNBC today, uh, Joe Kernan was uh, talking to some guys and Joe, you know, and I know Joe, you know, I mean, he knows who I am. I know he reads some of my stuff 
And, and so Joe says to these guys, you know, there are some people who are saying that the reason the Fed had to stop raising rates is because of the bubble, because, you know, they inflated this big bubble and that they could never normalize rates because we now had this abnormal amount of debt. And so this is just the day of reckoning, right? That we can't raise rates because we have so much debt that we can't afford it. And so maybe that's why we raised rates. And so we still have you know, a day of reckoning to pay. There's still going to be a payback because this recovery was phony. It was based on artificially low interest rates and cheap money. And now that we're trying to take, uh, you know, take that away, we're now going to experience uh, the, the, the payoff, right? And so he asked these guys, you know, is there any truth to this? Now, first of all, of course, who is he talking about? Who's saying this stuff? I mean, basically me, right? I'm the guy that's saying this stuff to the extent that anybody else is saying it. They're, they're basically saying it because they're listening to me because there's hardly anybody that's saying this, right? And I've been saying it for the longest. And in fact, of course, since I've been saying it for such a long time, that's another reason that people just want to completely dismiss me, right? Hey, Peter, you were saying the same thing in 2010. I was. I wasn't saying the exact same thing. I mean, I said, hey, eventually the Fed's going to have to, you know, if it starts raising rates, they're going to have to stop. They're going to have to go back to zero, right? They're going to prick their own bubble. I mean, I didn't know exactly how big the bubble would take. I didn't know how many years we could kick the can down the road before we had to deal with it. But the difference is today, right, so many of the things that I said have now come true. The warning signs are flashing much brighter than they were five or 10 years ago. So the problems are much more obvious. When I was pointing them out in 2010 or 11 or 12, the problems were there, but they weren't as obvious as, as they are now. But the fact of the matter is, even though they're more obvious, the people are equally as oblivious to them. And in fact, even more so. Right. Because, you know, I said uh, Warren Buffett, who admits that he used to be worried about the um, about the budget deficits, is not worried anymore. Hey, I was worried. But now the problem, you know, the deficits got so much bigger than I ever thought possible. And we haven't had a crisis that I guess we're never going to have a crisis. Right. Well, that is the thinking that gets people in trouble. If you think trees are going to grow to the sky. Right. If you think that something can go on forever that you used to think was unsustainable, but now you think you can go on forever because it's already gone on longer than you thought, and now you're going to capitulate and, and just say, okay, I give up. I'm never going to worry about it because I was wrong to worry about it for all these years. Buffett wasn't wrong to worry about the deficits five and ten years ago. He's wrong to not worry about them now. And just because it hasn't caused a crisis doesn't mean it's never going to cause a crisis. Look, I mean, sometimes you can underestimate how long it's going to take. I mean, what if I'm, you know, what if there's this dam and I think the dam is going to break. And so I don't want to build my house, you know, under this dam. I just don't think it, 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 the foundation is sound. I'm worried about it. But what if other people like laugh at me? Ah, Peter, you're, you're, you're nuts. It's totally sound. And, and so they start building houses there and doing all sorts of things and living there. And I'm, you know, I'm ignoring it. I'm not, I'm not over there. And let's say for years and years go by and people just, you know, just build bigger houses or they, the community keeps building up and people are saying, ah, that guy Schiff, you know, he's, he was telling us not to build here, that the dam wasn't safe. Ah, what does he know? Look, it's been 10 years and we've had no problems, right? Well, let's say, you know, 12 years, 15, then all of a sudden the dam breaks and everybody gets wiped out. All the houses are destroyed. It turned out I was right. I was just early. But if I built my house someplace else, well, I didn't get wiped out, right? And maybe it seemed like I was wrong because for a while, you know, what I was warning about didn't happen because I, I, I underestimated, you know, how long it would take the dam to break. But the fact of the matter is it broke. 
And I was right. I was just early. But anybody who ignored my warnings, they got wiped out. At that point, it's too late, right? Because, you know, everything is gone. So um, Buffett is wrong now. Right. He was right back then. But this is what happens. I mean, it's it's a capitulation. People are like, OK, well, I, I guess I was wrong to worry because nothing bad has happened. Well, a lot of bad things have happened. It's just that the stock market has kept going up. It's ignored all those bad things. Right. Uh, the real estate market went up. It ignored those bad things. But look beneath the surface. Look at what's happened to the economy. Look at what's happened to individual net worths. Record again, we got the consumer credit numbers that came out yesterday. All-time record high credit card debt. And the delinquencies are going up on credit cards, on student loans, on auto loans. Americans are broke. They're leveraged up to the hilt. They're living paycheck to paycheck. Corporations have never had so much debt. Individual states, municipalities have been, never had so much debt. We, are had, we had an orgy on debt. We have destroyed uh, the economic foundations of this country. We have hollowed out our industrial base. There have been real problems that have been growing beneath the surface as a result of these budget deficits and trade deficits that everybody has been ignoring because they're focusing on the wrong thing. But again, why do we have Trump? Why did people vote for Trump? Because the economy stunk. The recovery was lousy, despite all the money that the Fed printed. In fact, because of all that money, it was all misdirected to Wall Street and outside of Main Street. But a real crisis is coming. And so when Joe Kernan, he asked these guys, is it possible that... These guys are right, right? Without mentioning me by name, is it possible that the people who are saying that we had a phony economy, that it was all based on cheap money, and that's why we can't raise rates, and now we're going to have to deal with all the problems, you know, that we postponed because now rates are going up and the bubble is deflating? He said to these guys, and these are Main Street guys, is it possible that these guys are right? And their answer was, yeah, they could be right. And Joe was like, almost like, what? He like couldn't believe that these guys were saying, yeah, I guess that could be right. But then they went ahead and said, but we don't think they're right. We think everything is great. We think this and that. But they did acknowledge that there was some truth that maybe those few lone voices out there, whoever they are, these nameless voices who have been warning that this was a bubble, who have been warning the Fed could never normalize interest rates or could never shrink its balance sheet. And that we're experiencing now, right, is the with the withdrawal symptoms of trying to wean the economy off of that monetary heroin, right, that there is a chance that we're right. And it's not just a chance that we're right. As far as I'm concerned, there's no chance that they're right. There's no chance that I am wrong in my outlook. Now, is there a chance I'm early? Of course, I've already been early, right? Now, how, how far away is the crisis? How much further from here? To me, as I've said, now that we've seen the Fed throwing in the towel on normalizing rates, now that they're basically backtracking on shrinking their balance sheet, this is the countdown to, to the close. I mean, this is the ninth inning of this thing or close to it because this is what I said was going to happen. What surprised me is that it took this long, that the Fed was able to get interest rates up to two and a quarter percent. I didn't think they'd get them this high. I thought they were going to have to backtrack sooner. Now, the main reason I thought that was because I didn't know Trump was going to get elected president. Um, you know, back when I was making these forecasts, I mean, the Fed was talking about, uh, you know, raising rates. They had only raised rates one time, right? There was only one quarter point hike before Trump was elected. And I still believe to this day, had Hillary Clinton won, that that would have been it. It would have been one and done. There never would have been a second rate hike 
because the stock market would have tanked when Hillary was elected. The economy, which which was already falling into recession, would have gone into recession and the Fed would have gone back to zero and done more QE um, a couple of years ago. Right. That's what would have happened. But because Trump won and was able to generate all kinds of false optimism and was able to deliver more stimulus in the way of deficit finance tax cuts, the bubble got bigger. And during that backdrop, that provided the cover for the Fed to keep raising rates. And the markets were more focused on this booming economy, and they were ignoring the rate hikes. And the only reason the Fed was raising rates is because they thought the market was okay with it. You know, they raised rates and the market kept going up. So they kept raising rates. They didn't stop raising rates until the the market finally puked, until the market finally tanked because now they were afraid. And now, of course, the benefit of the tax cuts are in the rearview mirror. All this stimulus is fading. And now the now the, the Fed has to deal with what they would have had to deal with a couple of years ago had Hillary Clinton won. But based on what's going on now, you should be able to connect these dots. The pieces are coming into place that everything is going to play out exactly the way I've got it in my playbook. It's just happening uh, years later at at the worst possible time politically because it's all going to get blamed on Trump. It's all going to get blamed on the Republicans on and on the tax cuts. So the question is, though, when is the Fed going to cut rates? When is the Fed going to go back to uh, quantitative easing? And either if the stock market gets back down to the December lows or it takes out the December lows, I think the Fed is going to do something, right? They're going to they're going to call off quantitative tightening completely at that point or they're going to, you know, they're going to or they're going to cut rates or they're, they're going to do something because the Fed is the only game in town. I mean, maybe Trump might try to pull a trade deal out of his out of his ass and, you know, but that's not going to work, right? If this market's really going down, that might pr- produce a bounce if we've already sold off. Again, not from this level, but if we're down near the December lows and we announce a deal, maybe we'll buy a short uh, relief rally there. But I think the Fed's going to have to come into play. Now, it's also possible that it could be the economic numbers because we could end up with a negative Q1, right? We could have negative GDP. We could actually start to see some non-farm payroll numbers, maybe next month or the month after that, where we have a negative number and not a positive number, where jobs are destroyed, not lost. We can start to see the unemployment rate rising because, as I said, if wages are going up, The economy is weak. Employers can't afford to keep people on. They can't afford to pay people these higher salaries, especially if their sales are falling, which we know they are. And one of the reasons sales are falling is because consumers are broke. They've just borrowed too much money to buy stuff in the past. They don't have any money left over to keep buying stuff in the future. So the economy is contracting. Consumption is falling. So we start to see this. If we get a negative print for Q1, right, then that could be, Um, a point where now the Fed has to be preemptive to try to prevent a negative quarter in Q2, because if we have back-to-back negative quarters, then we have a recession. I doubt the Fed wants to see the whites of the recession's eyes, right? We want to actually be in a recession uh, before they take action. I think there'll be enough pressure on the Fed to do something. By the way, Jerome Powell is on 60 Minutes. I think with maybe some of the other uh, Ben Bernanke or Janet Yellen, I think they might all be on. I don't know if they've if they've ever had a sitting. In fact, I don't think there's ever been a sitting uh, Fed chairman who has appeared on 60 Minutes. Now, he taped the interview. So whatever he said, he already said it. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see on Sunday night 
you know, what his taped remarks are and if it has any impact on the stock market futures on Sunday night or on the stock market on Monday morning. But, I mean, this is a real uh, PR uh, blitz that the Fed is on. I mean, I think that the Fed is kind of desperate to kind of prove that they're still independent, even though they're clearly not. Right. I think the Fed is got, is is worried about its image. And so it's trying to do a, a PR move in advance. But again, this is going to be a battle. I've said this before. The Democrats are going to blame this whole thing on Trump, the recession, the bear market. on. But Trump is going to blame it all on the Fed. That's going to be the battle line. Right. Oh, it's the Fed's fault. Right. Because I had to deal with rate hikes. The Fed raised interest rates too much. Right. They didn't raise rates under Obama, but they did it under me. And so he's going to try to blame the, re- the recession on on the Fed. And I think the Fed already knows that it's going to have a, a PR battle on its hands uh, between who gets the blame, whether it's going to be the Fed, whether it's going to be uh, the administration. But believe me, if it's a battle between Trump blaming Powell and Powell tra- blaming Trump, no one's going to be blaming the Democrats. And the Democrats are going to be able to coast into victory, even on a campaign uh, as, as lousy as socialism. And I've said this before, under normal times, I don't think the American electorate is dumb enough at this point to vote in socialism. I mean, eventually they would be anyway. I mean, because we're getting dumber and dumber, right? The electorate keeps getting dumber. Uh, and so eventually they, they buy it. But... If the recession is as bad as I think it's going to be, and it starts before the election, and it's all blamed on Trump and capitalism, then I think that whoever the Democrats nominate, even if it is a socialist, is going to win because the Republicans are going to have nothing to run on. All they can say is, oh, socialism is bad. But since they wrecked the economy, why would anybody believe them? You're telling us how bad socialism is, but you told us everything was great and we're in recession. You told us that you made America great again, and I'm in worse shape now than I was before you were elected. We're in a terrible recession. We're in a bear market. right? I'm unemployed. Inflation, the cost of living is going up. We've got stagflation. The misery index is back. So why should I believe you? Why should I listen to you? You told me everything was great and it's a disaster. So at least I'm going to listen to these other guys who feel my pain, who said it was a problem, who who, who knew this was coming. And so, you know, I'm going to give their solution a try, even though their solution isn't going to work. Right. We know that uh, their solution is going to make it worse. But that is where we're headed. But in any event, before it really hits the fan, right, before people wake up, right, get your money invested properly, right? Before gold breaks out, right, once it goes through 1400, let's say it's going to be off to the races, right? You don't want to wait till then to start buying your gold stocks. Buy them now. You know, be thankful that this nonsense with uh, Barrick and Newmont is kind of having a cloud of uncertainty over the sector. Just buy into it, right? Get money out of the dollar. While so many people are so delusional about how great the U.S. economy is, how strong the U.S. economy is, while they're still ignoring overwhelming evidence that they are wrong. Now, eventually, they won't be able to ignore the evidence. Eventually, the crowd is going to figure this out all at the same time. Then they're going to be surprised. Oh, my God, nobody could have seen this coming. That's what they always say. It's easy to see it coming if you're looking for it, if you know what to look for. But if you're blind as a as a bat, you know, these they, that's why the, the, they never see these crises coming because they don't understand it. In many cases, they have a vested interest not to understand it, which makes it even worse. But before uh, it becomes obvious to the village idiot, take advantage of 
what people are doing in the markets by getting out of U.S. stocks, getting out of U.S. bonds, and getting into uh, you know the, the foreign stocks and the, the things that I am buying. In fact, I was even listening to uh, a lot of these you know really good investors, big time hedge fund managers that have been doing this for a long time, basically saying, "Look, the U.S. market's not going to make any money for the next 10 to 20 years. There's going to be very little returns, if any, in the U.S. market. If you want to get any return, you got to invest in emerging markets. You got to look overseas." A lot of very astute investors who don't even realize how bad the problems are for the U.S. economy. They're looking at it, you know, not even from that vantage point, still can see that there's nothing but risk in the U.S. market and there's a lot of opportunities in the foreign markets, given, uh, you know, the, the, the wide disparity now between valuations and the fact that everybody is so negative on the rest of the world while they're so positive on the United States. What they should be is positive on the rest of the world and negative on the United States because they don't understand the relationship. Americans live beyond their means because the rest of the world makes it possible by living beneath their means. America is an expensive uh, habit that the world has, that it needs to it needs to break. The world has been supporting America, right? We, you know, we've been able to issue dollars to the world in exchange for real things that require real labor and capital to produce. We get to live based on the productivity of the rest of the world. We get to borrow what the rest of the world saves. So that means the world consumes less than it produces and the world invests less than it saves in order to prop up and support the American way of life. This is all coming to an end. And this is going to be a disaster for America because we're going to have to live within our means, which have been greatly diminished over the years. But it is a giant relief for the rest of the world. And obviously, the rest of the world will not benefit you know, proportionately. There are going to be some countries that are going to benefit more than others. There have been some countries that have been you know, extending an even greater subsidy to the U.S. than other countries. And so these countries will have even more relief when the burden is lifted from their shoulders. And that is a dichotomy that people just don't get. And so while everybody is very bearish on the rest of the world and bullish on the dollar, they should be bullish on a lot of the world and bearish on the dollar. That's why I'm not just a perma bear. I mean, I'm actually bullish on a lot of aspects of the global economy in a post-U.S. dollar world. I mean, once the dollar is no longer the reserve currency and we can no longer abuse that privilege and the rest of the world is no longer working for us, when they start working for themselves, uh, a lot of the problems are going to be solved. A lot of the problems have to do with the massive economic imbalances that exist in the world. That's why the global economy is unstable, because of the huge trade deficits and budget deficits that are emanating from the United States, because the rest of the world is being forced to subsidize and finance that debt. When they no longer do it, when the only support is the Federal Reserve, when all the money that we spend is just being printed by our own central bank and nobody wants those dollars and all those chickens come home to roost, it's America that's going to have to deal with it. The rest of the world is going to benefit. So if you want to put yourself in a position to benefit, then you need to invest your money in the areas of the world that are going to benefit from this realignment of global purchasing power, from this realignment of this global totem pole. Uh, America is going to come down quite a few notches. And so you want to be invested in the areas that are going to go up, right? You want to uh, benefit from the increasing purchasing power uh, that's going to take place outside the United States. You want to benefit in the economic boom that's going to take place outside the United States. I would like to see America back on top again. 
But the only way we're going to do that, and it's not going to be an easy road to get back to where we were, but the only way we're going to do it is to fully embrace free market capitalism and sound money and go back to those founding principles that worked so well in the past, but are right now, I mean, we're not even close to that. I mean, we're the pendulum is definitely moving in the wrong direction, and it's going to move in the wrong direction first. I mean, we're going to have to go all in on socialism. We're going to have to hit rock bottom in this country. Things are going to have to be really, really bad before we ever try doing the right thing. Remember, we're going to try everything that that's wrong, right? Americans will eventually do the right thing, but only after they've tried everything else first. And we're going to try everything else, including socialism, and it's going to fail miserably. And maybe that will provide the catalyst that we need uh, to to do the right thing. But it's going to be a difficult path, and, and, I, and I hope we go down it. And I hope I live long enough to see uh, the successful results of, uh, of a return to free market capitalism. I really do hope that America can be great again. Uh, but unfortunately... Uh, I think, you know, we're going to be a lot less great in the future. Things are going to get a lot darker before we see the light at the end of the tunnel.